I'm so excited about our show today, Kelly. We have Dr. David Martin here with us, and we got to meet you here recently, and I was fascinated by some of the conversations we were having. Tell us what you do. Right now, I'm involved with, I'm a hospitalist. Mm -hmm. So we see patients before surgery, we evaluate them, make sure that they are at appropriate risk for surgery, and then we will follow them after the surgery in the hospital. My background was in primary care. I was in private practice for close to 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Grew up in Tyler, moved away, came back, and for the last probably 12, 15 years have been involved with this perioperative type medicine. Kind of talk to us about what exactly that is. Well, it was kind of the same thing, assessing patients' risk Mm -hmm. uh, for surgery. Um, and making sure that they are at appropriate risk for that particular surgery. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of sick patients coming in that are scheduled for surgery that should not be having surgery Mm -hmm. safely. Sometimes we have to do uh, some interventions, some additional testing prior to the surgery. Sometimes they pass those tests, sometimes they fail, Mm -hmm. and they are not able to have the surgery. Mm -hmm. What we are trying to avoid is any type of complication or adverse event for the patient. I know with orthopedics, I mean, I've trained a few orthopedic guys, and I've had a few orthopedic injuries here myself. Uh, I know that they are looking at a certain BMI because it, you know, of course, the healthier you go in, the better chance you have with the procedure that they're going to be doing. Correct. And there's a lot of criteria that the surgeons would look at. Um, we take a little bit different approach from a medical standpoint and try to so- assess their cardiorespiratory fitness and some of their other medical issues that would put them at a higher risk. So orthopedic-wise, they may be fine for surgery. Medically, they may not be. And so the conjunction working together like that, we try to come up with the best risk assessment for those patients. So if someone you see is not a candidate for the procedure due to health complications, what do y'all, how do you, what do you recommend recommend for these people to do? Well, it all depends. A big... um, factor what, what, what we look at it would be cardiovascular risk obviously if you have a problem with your heart and it doesn't really matter what's going on with your knee so heart disease is a big big issue um, so we can do some cardiac testing sometimes um, we end up having to refer them to a cardiologist sometimes their surgeries are delayed sometimes they're canceled and they never have surgery or they go through some testing and then they are they are adequately risk stratified for their procedure uh, but cardiovascular risk is a is a big one um, diabetes is a big one um, and it's you get to see people that need some sort of intervention but that may not be very healthy at all and that's it's been kind of an eye-opening um, experience for me because I was on the primary care side taking care of these patients on a regular basis and now I'm seeing them right before surgery and some of them are really sick and we will pick up heart disease we will pick up patients that have uh, significant coronary artery disease and they end up having cardiac stents instead of their orthopedic surgery and to me it's like how did that happen what, what led to that? They have a PCP. They've been following up. They're taking these medicines. 
but how did that diagnosis get missed until now, until a week before their surgery? And, you know, I, th- I think that that leads to a lot of questions on how, th- how we do things just in general and, you know, the type of approach we take. When, we're getting, when we look at getting people ready for surgery, our mindset is very specific. We approach it differently. I approach it differently than I did when I was in primary care. And I think, in general, I think we have to take a different approach in assessing someone's health at this point. Is there any communication to the, between doctors? Like, like you said, how did we miss that? Um, we will... Our information will get sent back to their primary doctor, but it's not like a phone call and say, hey, yeah. it's not accusatory, right. and I don't yeah. think anybody's doing anything intentionally wrong or missing things. It's just kind of how the system is work, working right now. Um, it's difficult to do the things that I think you need to do with our current setup. It's just how our health system has worked. We're really good at fixing things when they're broken. Yeah, being reactive rather than proactive. We're not really good at preventing those things from happening. We can prevent fast death. Mm-hmm. We're not good at preventing slow death, meaning we're not, in my opinion, proactive enough about screening and helping people avoid some of those medical issues that could get them into trouble down the road. Well, so, most, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I mean, when you talk about pre-screening, you know, you see all the different health tests out there. What age should somebody start thinking about pre-screening for different issues? And where do you go have the pre-screening? And that, what kind of pre-screening? And, and that's a good question. Um, I don't think it's ever too early to start screening. And so what does screening mean? Well, that can take on a lot of different forms. It's not necessarily about going for an imaging test or a blood test. I think a lot of it's just being aware. A lot of it starts with your history, your family history. Um, And traditionally, you would think, all right, once you start getting older, that's when you have to start screening for these things. Mm -hmm. Well, now we're starting to see cardiovascular disease in a lot younger patient population. You're starting to pick up cancers in younger population so I think in general we're getting unhealthier a lot of that metabolic disorders and it's a continuum that kind of goes from hyperinsulinemia and high glucose levels to fatty liver disease all the way up to diabetes all of that impacts your health it can impact your cancer risk it can impact your cardiovascular risk from heart attacks to strokes. Um, It can impact your neurodegenerative risk as far as like dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Lewy body dementia. All those things play a role, and it's the way our culture and that we're growing up, we're not probably eating the healthiest. We're not exercising. We're always sitting. We're not doing, we're not hunter-gatherers like we were before i think um once if we go way back in time when we were hunter gatherers there would be times where we wouldn't eat for a long period of time so our body had to figure out a way to conserve energy 
So it figured out how to kind of store fat. Fat's not a, necessarily a bad thing. So it figured out ways to store fat. So if we went periods of time without finding food, we, were, we could convert that fat into energy. That worked well when we didn't have a food everywhere. Now there's food everywhere. And there's a limit to what our fat stores can take. It's almost like a bathtub that you can fill up with fat. And then at some point, you get too much and it spills over. And when it spills over, that's where it causes problems. It gets in between some organ, visceral fat, into your muscles. That's what becomes toxic and leads to some of these metabolic disorders. That's great. Uh, you know, I, I think you can, if you take like a post-reduction look at you know, where we are now and where we came from, it's so true how the food that we had to find often cost more calories to find it than it would be when we would eat it. Right. And, uh, and, and you're so, you're right on. I mean, now we're in that fat, we're still in that fat storing stage. We're st- still in this, like an insatiable appetite. I mean, that food-wise and materialism-wise also. But, you know, that was the irony of the way we were built allowed us to survive and if we're not careful that's going to be the very thing that ends up killing us all our brain is a tiny fraction of the weight of our body but it consumes i think 25 30 of our energy and so it figures out a way to survive subcutaneous fat is not necessarily bad except from an aesthetic standpoint if you but it's when it gets in excess and that's what leads to the metabolic dysfunction, which has its hand in everything. And I think right now, instead of waiting until someone has a diagnosis of diabetes, that's a big deal, diabetes or those metabolic, it starts way earlier, not just when you have a blood test that reaches a certain level of an A1C of 6.5. That started years and years and years and years ago, but our system's not necessarily set up to really screen for that. You can do, we have the tools available if they're used appropriately. You can be checking insulin levels and glucose levels earlier. Um, It would be possibly outside the recommended guidelines from whatever organization is recommending them. But it makes a lot of sense. We know that certain things cause certain things. So why not check them earlier on than waiting until we're at that end point? I think the hard thing is, is even, even when we check them, what do we do? Because we've got to have some personal responsibility. I think, you know, they, you, we used to heard uh, there's type 1 and type 2, and, and type 2 used to be called adult onset. But they're not calling it that anymore because the majority of people that are becoming diabetics are in your younger adolescence. And uh, I believe, like, it's of all the diabetics, it's 5% are top one and 95% are top two. So there's a huge environmental component that's going on. And it, again, it comes back to personal responsibility. You know, glucose is not bad, sugar's not bad for you, you have to have it to live. Cholesterol is not bad, you have to have it. Fat's not bad, you have to have it. But in excess, and if you're not metabolizing it properly, it can be detrimental to you. And one way that you metabolize it appropriately is being active. 
fitness has time and time again shown to be a probably the most effective tool at minimizing some of these issues. Unfortunately, it's probably the hardest and the most time-consuming one to do that. But if you are invested in your health and focused on being healthy, it's the best tool you have. Yeah, I mean, during, for, like, say, strength training or weightlifting, you know, predominantly your source of fuel is glucose. If you're running long, uh, long periods of time at a moderate rate, then fat comes into play. But, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, I, I think we are very confused about what we should do, too, because, you know, we say carbs are our problem. Well, then we just try to cut carbs all the way out, which is not the answer. Um, or, or all red meat, you know, the carnivore diet. And I think that people are, are very confused, too, about nutrition. So, you know, I've wished that the, you know, I, I know that they've had some government-issued uh, like the pyramid, food pyramid. I've heard people say that's wrong. Well, I mean, the, the, the carbs at the bottom, the biggest part is not donuts and pastries. You know, I mean, it's, it's healthier, you know, uh, baked potatoes and fruit and vegetables. And that does need to be the bulk of our diet. But I think these, you know, we're just going to get our food out to eat every night. And when you look at the abundance of how much, you're getting. We don't really recognize what a portion size is anymore. And, uh, I mean, you're looking at some of these meals. I believe I read an awesome blossom has got like 290 grams of fat. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something you might get over the course of weeks and you're getting mm-hmm. in one meal. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, like you said, the inactivity just compounds the problem. It's like, it's like we're filling our gas tank up at every gas station we pass without expending it. I mean, it, if you didn't have that clicker for the gas to cut off, it would spill all out. And that's pretty much what we're, we're, we're talking about. You know, with, with muscle fibers, you were talking about fat a while ago, muscle fibers can either hypertrophy or atrophy. They either get bigger or they atrophy. But fat's different. It can hyperplasia. So once the fat cells filled up, it will split off and form new fat cells, and it just will keep going. And then you're talking about the people who are three, four, five hundred 500 pounds. You develop a tank, but then also your blood sugar stays high. I know, I know, I hear, and I don't know if you've heard this, but I'm overweight because I'm insulin sensitive. Now you're you're insulin sensitive because you're overweight. Yeah, I mean it. It's not that we're looking for, I think, a reason or excuse as to why this excess weight, you know, gain that we're seeing, and and you know, thyroid. I know that is an issue in some people, but it only really accounts for I think like five to ten extra pounds. Max, even I might be exaggerating that a little bit, but so it's not thyroid either. It's just simply a matter of us being more aware of what we're consuming, and 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 having a plan. You know, for I mean, what is my plan? But that's the hard thing is motivating people to do the right thing. So, can I ask a question? So, this weight loss shot that is just the rage right now, it does something to you as far as your glucose and your insulin levels. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's an interesting. Um, topic um and in general terms i think weight loss definitely has a place in your overall health and fitness and your long-term goals to rely on one thing for your overall health long term i think is probably the incorrect approach but if if you can use it to help you get started and move towards your goal, I think it's very effective. Um, the 
I was reading one thing in from a, I think it was Dr. Uh, Peter Atia, and he said, I wish, talking about nutrition and diets, I wish you were not allowed to speak about diets until you had your exercise routine in order. You know, there's so many different diets, and it almost becomes very politicized, and this is, we don't move enough, we don't do enough, we need, you have to let your body work, it's a machine, well, it's not, I shouldn't say machine, but it's, it's designed to do things, and no matter, it's easier to go get this particular food than spend 30 minutes doing some sort of fitness routine but the studies have shown for example your vo2 max which is a measure basically in general terms how much body how much oxygen your your body can consume in a period of time so the higher your vo2 max the more cardio respiratory fit you would be you'd be uh considered elite cyclists elite athletes will have a very high vo2 max people more sedentary that are not very active would have a very low VO2 max. So if you compared for any specific age group, um, let's say for 50-year-old men, and you measured their VO2 maxes, and you took the bottom 25% of that group, so the least well-performing, and compared it to the top 2.5% of that group, so elite that bottom group would have a 400 times more likelihood of dying at any point from all-cause mortality. So all-cause mortality could be from anything. Could be from chronic disease, could be from a heart attack, could be from a traffic accident, could be from an illness. It's just from anything, but it, it shows you that that, card, that cardiorespiratory fitness plays such a critical role in how your body can handle insults and overcome things. And so that, if you compare that metric to anything else, it's the most potent way to increase your longevity, increase your lifespan, increase your ability to live longer, better, more so than lowering your cholesterol, let's say. If you look at the hazard ratios on some of these things, it's, it's not even close. And I wasn't aware of that until not too long ago, but it's really fascinating. And so you don't have to be elite, but if you can move your VO2 max toward that level, you start cutting down your risk of problems. So back to your original question about some of the weight loss medicine, you have all these tools that you can use. There's not one specific answer. There's not a, a magic pill or a magic thing that you can do. It's a process. We're people. We're human beings. We're made to do certain things. And move, be active is one of those. And to Kelly's point, it's like, but pay, people don't know what to do. And so that's where our system fails us because we have the tools, but we're, we don't do a good job at really putting everything together. It's very disjointed. You may have this little silo of you go see your doctor here, and then they say, well, you need to go work out. And where do you go do that? Who's going to help me do that? You don't have anybody that's really formulating a specific plan for you. Or you need to do this or that to your diet. Okay, that sounds great, but I'm not even the one that cooks. 
So I need, you know, my spouse, my partner to come in. I don't know. And there's always limitations for every patient. Maybe they can't afford certain things. They, they don't have access to certain things. And I think we really fail people because we, we kind of know what should be done, but we don't do a good job conveying that. In medical school, we, no one taught me how to explain exercise to somebody. No one ex- we, we're not good at that part of it. But there are people that are very good at it. And I think the key is pulling those people together and creating a program for uh, people that could really come up with a specific program tailored to each uh, person's individual needs. You know, another problem is that we're having is the stress, the anxiety, the d- depression that we're seeing. I mean, it's, it's exploded. And, I mean, life is easier now to live than ever in human history. And, you know, they've got studies that just 15 minutes of walking can help to stabilize your serotonin and dopamine levels. And, I mean, that's, that's more than taking an antidepressant, Prozac, Lexapro. You get better mental stimulation just by walking than you would by taking a pill. So that's something else, too. The body, everything was engineered for us to move, to be creative, to find food, to build shelter. And when all of those things are at no more at need, what do we do? We sit around, and we're bored, and we eat. So let's talk about <clears throat> dementia and Alzheimer's, now that you bring that up. So um, what, what's causing it? What's, what can you do to prevent it? That's a difficult question. Mm-hmm. Um, we are, once you have it, we're not real good about, we can't make it go away necessarily. So the prevention or trying to mitigate your risk for developing that becomes even more important. There are some biomarkers and testing that you can do to assess your risk. Family history plays a role in, in a lot of this. So getting a, really knowing what a person's family history, detailed family history is, can help. But back to one of the earlier points, this metabolic dysfunction, that spectrum from hyperinsulinemia all the way up to type 2 diabetes, all, that plays a role. A lot of the dementias can be vascular in nature, and so that metabolic dysfunction affects that. So high insulin levels, high glucose levels, that can put you at a higher risk to develop these. We, It's interesting because... As you look at, most people want to live as long as they can and as healthy as they can. I think that's the goal. The people that live the longest past 100, there's a, we call them centenarians. So, you know, how do they do that? Well, the best thing that they've done is they pick, they, they had good parents. Some of it is genetic. But we can also learn some other things from them. And... What we found out is they still die from the same diseases that everybody else dies from. They just die 20 or so years later. So they've lived longer without disease. And I think that's the right approach. How do we live longer without disease versus what our system currently does is trying to figure out a way to, for you to live longer with disease. So here's your disease. Here's your diabetes. Let's treat it and see how long we can keep you going. And that's a big 
change in mindset. So how can we live longer without the disease? So centenarians still die from heart attacks, still die from strokes, still develop dementia, still has Parkinson's, still de have de develop cancers. They just developed them a lot later. And then instead of a slow decline in their health, as we typically would see, just slow decline, they stay healthy longer. And then when they do develop some of these chronic diseases, they're, they're not, their quality of life is not poor for as long, which I think is, is an important thing. I don't think anybody wants to be alive and not be able to do anything or be alive and their mind's not what it should be so and then there's an emotional part of that so all these things have to be together to increase your health span meaning live longer better not just live longer in years mm -hmm. and so if we can figure out a way and i think there are ways to do that we have the tools we just don't have the right system in place and Sometimes with medicine, it takes a long time to change some of these approaches. But there's, you see, everybody can see examples of what they don't want to be. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you want to spend the last 10 years of your life? You don't know when that 10 years will start, but how do you want that to be? What do you want to be able to do? A lot of times with medicine, even in our studies, it's very short-sighted, it's we're looking five years out, 10 years out. I'm 52. I want to know, I'm, I want to plan when I'm 85. I want to be able to go ride my mountain bike maybe or go on a hike. So what do I need to do now to prepare myself for that? Um, not wait until later. need to work on it now. I think you see too in a lot of uh, these people that are living longer is – there's, there's some other things that kind of coincide. They, they live a life more of moderation. They live in groups and communities. There's more social activity. Uh, I think there's, there's more activity because we're talking about not first world countries. We're talking usually, you know, they're, they're not like what we have. We, we say we're so blessed to have all this, and it seems like this blessing is wreaking havoc on us. And I just think that the that – the goal that we have to keep pushing and pushing and pushing to be better, uh, I think we've, we've, uh, we've overshot that just a little bit. And it's not about consuming more, be it cars and houses and, you know, products or, or eating bigger meals, a bigger steak is a sign of success, or drinking more and more wine. Uh, I think that's kind of what our society has really kind of promoted in some weird way as being successful. And uh, I don't know. I think – I think it is going to take a reversal somehow, and I don't know who's strong enough to carry the message, but just the way that we're living our life, to me it seems obvious, some of the problems that we're seeing. Uh, I think if you're, you and I are concerned, so of course it's just common sense to us that we exercise and don't eat a lot more than we need. Uh, but I think when that, that's really become this, this rat race that we've all caught up, got caught up in, and that's the way we live our lives. I think you bring up an excellent point about the social interaction. 
that's part of health span. That's part of living. We're, we were meant to move, and we were meant to interact with others. And if your body or your mind fails you, the first thing you do is withdraw. So if your body's not there, you can't get on the floor and play with your grandchild because you can't get up. Yeah. If your mind's not there, you start withdrawing. If you're depressed, you're not engaged. And then that triggers a whole other cascade wow. of things. So the better we can do in helping people remain healthy physically – Medically, emotion, or cognitively and emotionally, the better health span that they will have, and it's a, um, it's it's a continue. It's everything's related, and I think where we miss the mark right now is how we have things kind of siloed, because people are busy, and it's very difficult to go from one place to the other trying to search and try to get the answers. You need a team that's invested, that's has a plan. We know what's out on the horizon. We know it's out there because we have studies that show these are the things that are out there. You need people that can help you navigate through that. Things will still happen, but they don't need to happen unnecessarily. Wow. How can we prolong you living without disease true yeah i don't know i think purpose i think we've all got to have a purpose in life and with that purpose then you feel better more self-confident about yourself and you take you start taking you're more aware of what you're doing in life and you get you take those directions a lot better if i have a purpose but i don't know i think that you know i think that we watch so much tv we watch so much news that we're at this, we're stuck in this amygdala hijacking where we're in this fight-or-flight mode or freeze all day long. And uh, I know that, you know, there's no more saber-toothed tigers chasing us when we go out to our car. But I guarantee you if we were to look at some people's brains under an MRI, you would see the same type of activity going on, just how on edge we are by what we're seeing in society today. You know, and that... That stress is a major factor. Sleep is a big deal, too. And how we live our lives, we're probably not getting adequate sleep. And if you look over time, how we evolved with certain things, sleep has never really changed. And it's interesting because when we sleep, we're at our most vulnerable. Right. So way back when, when we sleep, we could get attacked by predators, we're not able to defend ourselves. We're not searching for things. We're not reproducing. We are very vulnerable. High risk. But it stayed that way for a reason. It's your body's time to kind of clean up, kind of do some house cleaning. It, it's, it's fascinating everything that happens while you sleep. So you have to incorporate that into the mix too, being physically active, getting enough sleep, being engaged with people. It, it, and it kind of goes back to... Is there one particular pill or answer for something? No, there's not. It's a continuum, and it can get very complicated and very confusing for people. And right now, I think we're just we're coming up short. You know, they're talking about like Ozempic. The thing that I see being in the gym is that you have people 
taking it that don't need to take it, number one. Sure. And then when they do take it, they just don't eat, which, talking about metabolism, you're, you're lowering your metabolic rate because you're losing not only fat, but you're losing a lot of muscle. And as we get older, you're naturally going to lose some muscle anyway. So it's kind of a double whammy there on, on, the, on the muscle loss. And uh, I'm, I'm all for if we, you know, if it's somebody that's like three or four hundred pounds, it's, there, there's sometimes it's worth the risk to get the weight off than to leave it on, and, and I'm all for that. But what I wish is that with somehow or another we set it up with if you're going to take this, since your appetite has been decreased, this is an optimal time to learn how to eat good. You know, and so you're not going to be hungry. Well, it doesn't matter. Get in the habit of eating at breakfast. Get in the habit of having a mid-morning snack and eating at lunch and mid-afternoon and dinner. And then we can look at getting off of these products. And when we get off of it, we'll have developed a habit that uh, will keep us right where we, we were, or even better, I'd say, with the diet than taking these products. But the simple fact is, is we know what's going to happen when people get off. Because you've, you've eaten up so much muscle, your metabolic rate has decreased so much that it's going to be easier to put on fat. And it's going to be that visceral type fat that you were talking about around the organs. And you're going to get subcutaneous fat also. But uh, I just think sometimes we take one step forward and then we take about five steps backwards. And maintaining muscle mass and strength is so important later in life. Um, and you have to plan for that. You're your ability to maintain muscle mass decreases over time. And so you need to be aware of that from a nutrition standpoint, with your protein intake, from your fitness standpoint, trying to maintain that because that has been shown to increase your longevity, increase your health span because maybe it prevents a fall. Maybe it allows you to get up when you fall. Um, hip fractures in elderly patients are... It's, it's a bad thing. Uh, if you suffer a hip fracture within the first year, there's a high percentage that you will die. And how do we – so if someone has a hip fracture, we try to fix it really quickly. But how do, why don't – let's just kind of prevent that if we can. Things will happen, but if you, if you look around, you can tell people that are not physically fit, and I think it would be – a a noble goal to try to help them become more physically fit to avoid some of those pitfalls. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we could sit here and talk all evening about this. This is so fascinating. You know, I'm very fortunate where I live at the Cascades at the Stratford. We have a lot of seniors in our building. It's amazing how well they do. They play golf almost every day. They're in their eighties and nineties and they eat well and they walk and I mean, talk. It, I mean, it's very much a sense of community. So, so everything that you're saying is exactly right. It, it's amazing how that works. Uh, Dr. Martin, I hope you come back and visit us again. This has been fascinating. I would love to. Yeah, because I'd like to hear a little bit about, you know, we're talking about muscle loss and what you think about, like, hormone replacement therapy in men and women. A little bit more interested in that. Absolutely. Too. Sure. Absolutely. Kelly, thank you always for being thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.